Well, good morning. It's great to be here with all of you. I bring you greetings from Church of the Resurrection in Washington, D.C., and um, I can tell you that we all are aware of and track what is happening here with the ministry of Church of the Incarnation here in Harrisonburg, and um, so appreciate being sister churches with you. And uh, as Aubrey mentioned, the last time I saw Aubrey, he was um, preaching. It was a great privilege to have him preaching at um, an ordination service. There were four of us being um, ordained a couple of months ago, um, and so it was great to have him there for that. Um, and I want to thank him for assigning me such an easy topic <laughs> as Christianity and politics um, here this morning. The last time I actually preached was at Church of the Resurrection, and that time we were doing a series on relationships, and um, everybody else got to preach topics on dating and marriage, and I got the topic of celibacy, um, which in a church full of 20 and 30-something singles um, is an interesting topic to preach on. Um, so people aren't lining up to hear about that topic necessarily. And so I don't know um, if I just keep drawing the short straw here or what, but um, we will get to work here together on this. So it's great to be with you. Um, so because our church is based on Capitol Hill, we have a lot of uh, members of our congregation who work in politics. And unlike um, some churches in the city, we have uh, members who work on both sides of the aisle. And as we all know, it is a challenging time to navigate the world of politics as a Christian. Um, and so last year for our parish retreat, I think we go to the same place that you all go to uh, for our parish retreat. For our weekend, we, we printed up a selection of letters that were written anonymously by members of our congregation to describe their experience in our church and of being a Christian in Washington. And among those letters, we included a couple of letters from those working in politics. One letter came from a person who works with Democrats. And she does so because she is deeply committed to addressing the issues of poverty. And her letter described her ongoing discouragement at the frequency with which the genuineness of her faith was questioned by other Christians because She's a Democrat. Another letter came from a church member who works in the White House for President Trump. And she described the vitriol she has experienced from other Christians when they learn that she works in the current administration. Both work in their respective roles because their understanding of what leads to a more flourishing society has led them to work in different political circles. Neither of them do so naively or uncritically, nor do they accept wholesale every policy that their side promotes. But their letters, which were read aloud during our parish retreat, raise some important questions. Why do our political identities today seem more decisive than almost any other aspect of our identities? Why does the Christian community appear to exhibit the same degree of antagonism and polarization that exists in the broader culture? 
And perhaps most fundamentally, is there anything distinctive about how Christians should engage in politics? And if so, how would that show itself? Often when we consider about the options um, for the relationship between faith and citizenship, it seems there's one of two possibilities. One option is to retreat or to withdraw, either because politics just feels too toxic or because the issues feel uh, too complex and overwhelming. And there are studies to suggest that a rising generation of Christians are more politically disengaged um, than any in recent memory. The other option sometimes seems to be to entrench ourselves that much more deeply into our political group, whatever political group that might happen to be, and to sequester ourselves in an echo chamber among those with whom we agree, who watch the same news channels, and who read the same newspapers as we do. Now, I don't want to suggest that Aspects of these options are completely wrong. There are responsible cases to be made for seasons of withdrawal for purposes of reappraisal or perhaps renewal. And on the other hand, no one wants to suggest that having strongly held political views is unimportant or that those views should not be discussed as thoughtfully and as persuasively as possible. But what I do want to briefly consider is whether there is a distinct contribution that Christians, as Christians, can make politically. Is there a particular stance with which Christians approach politics that should be different from those who are not Christians? And I ask these questions with this assumption in mind. Politics is more than simply voting in elections or favoring one set of policies or another. We often think of policy of politics just in those terms. But it's more than that. Politics is the process by which we order our common life together. And politics aims to achieve certain goals that it believes will lead to human flourishing. And so, when we understand politics in this way, we quickly see that Christianity cannot be anything other than deeply and unmistakably political. We heard it in our readings this morning. In Isaiah, we hear God's reaction to injustice being done and his call to political rulers to enact true justice. In Psalm 47, God is praised as the supreme king to whom current earthly political leaders should submit. In Mark's gospel that we heard, Jesus comes onto the scene as an heir of Israel's greatest politician, King David. And he holds up an image of the most powerful political leader of the day, Caesar Augustus, and he subversively suggests that Caesar's days are numbered. Now, I'm going to assume that this congregation does not need to be convinced that the gospel that Jesus preached has political implications. 
we will simply take it as assumed that the message of the kingdom is not a privatized Jesus and me get saved so I can go to heaven when I die kind of gospel. We're going to just take it as assumed that the death and resurrection of Jesus was the inbreaking of God's reign and that the reality and implications of that reign are to be worked out on earth in space-time history and that we are the broken and fragile instruments through which that reign is to be enacted. This means that we expect over the course of time that the grace and the lordship of Christ will, in God's ways, in God's timing, that aren't always transparent to us, that Christ's lordship will find expression in everything from art to architecture to business to journalism and also to politics. But we will also take it as assumed that the kingdom is not fully here yet. It's broken in, but it's still in motion, and it has not yet been fully realized. Jesus has not yet returned in person to rule. And therefore, God orders and affirms caretaker governments to enact provisional and temporary justice until that time that Jesus returns. Earthly governments are not Christian, nor can they be. Triumphal attempts to make earthly governments in any way directly identified with God's rule is a political and a theological mistake. But if that is the case, then we have to ask, what is it that we are aiming for? What do we have theological grounds to expect? The, theolo the theologian Karl Barth argues that we work towards governments that are analogous to God's kingdom. What's an analogy? An analogy is where you compare two things that are different in order to highlight their similarities. And so in this respect, we should work towards degrees, not complete alignment, but degrees of correspondence between earthly governments and God's kingdom. Earthly governments will never be God's kingdom, nor should we expect them to be. However, as a result of the church's proclamation of the gospel, we believe that governments can learn what their relatively bounded role can be during this period between Christ's ascension and his return. In other words, we believe that the reading we heard from Philippians 2, verse 9, this morning, is true. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This means that political rulers and political regimes will bow the knee to the lordship of Christ. Now, we know, of course, that that will be fully and completely true in the age to come, but not just in the age to come. As with every other area of life, we believe that God's rule breaks into history now. 
and that we should therefore expect to see glimpses and anticipations of that future in political rulers who bow the knee to Jesus Christ today. This is why 4th century Christians were not surprised by the eventual conversion of the Roman emperor. They were so confident in the gospel, they expected it. However, this does not mean that the state should ever attempt to enact a distinctly Christian set of policy, policies. Rather, it means that a regime that has acknowledged the ultimate rule of Christ will go about its governing tasks with humility instead of hubris, knowing that they themselves sit under a higher authority. A state which has heard the gospel will no longer present itself as the be-all, end-all to which humanity should bow and acquiesce. Rather, a state that has been disciplined by the lordship of Christ will see itself as simply scaffolding in which the cathedral of God's kingdom is being built. Scaffolding is not a part of the cathedral. Scaffolding has limited use. It plays a transitional role. It will eventually be taken down. At the same time, during the period that cathedrals are being built, scaffolding is very important. And it needs to be tended to with great care. What this means for Christians, then, is that we engage in politics aware of a deep tension, and it's a tension that is constant and is inescapable, and it is never fully resolved on this side of Jesus' coming. We put our best efforts towards creating the political conditions in which God's work can be done, in which flourishing communities can operate, even as we remember that the goods of those political conditions are always going to be relative and temporary. The Christian view of politics constantly hovers between, on the one hand, the missionary expectations of Philippians chapter 2 of rulers bowing the knee, and on the other hand, a, a humility and patience that recognizes that Jesus is not here yet and we're still waiting for his return and for the kingdom to fully come. If we affirm that earthly politics should, however, be analogous to God's kingdom, the question remains then, how do we make that analogy work? How do we relate the beauty and the perfection of God's kingdom to the messiness of earthly politics? And I want to briefly suggest three things. First, I want to suggest that we allow ourselves to be more deeply formed in the story of God's kingdom and the story of God's politics. And by this, I don't mean finding individual Bible verses and trying to apply them to a given political issue. We've all seen examples where somebody... Um, argues for free markets by quoting where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Or who takes a Bible verse on poverty and takes that as 
proving that we should expand a certain government program. This is not how we use Scripture. We want to engage with it in ways that are holistic and not simplistic or reductionistic. However, if we are going to be formed by the full story of God's kingdom, let me offer one suggestion for how we might do that on a regular basis. And that is to simply allow the liturgy that we practice here every Sunday to begin to shape and inform us politically. And I say this because if we don't allow the liturgy of the church to shape us politically, other liturgies will. Politics and liturgy always go hand in hand. If politics is concerned with creating the conditions for its vision of a flourishing life, it uses liturgy to shape people's desires so that they will want that vision. And every nation state does that. So just think about it here in the United States. We have liturgies that begin shaping citizens from a very young age. We take young children and we have them start the school day by what? Putting their hands over their hearts and pledging allegiance to America as represented by the flag. What do we do anytime we get large groups of people together in a stadium for a sporting event? We start by singing about America. I remember I had a friend from England over. I took him to a baseball game, Nationals baseball game, and he was shocked when people started standing up to sing the national anthem. He said, are we going to do this right now? He said, don't we just do this at Olympics or sort of special events? I said, oh, no. I said, here we do it. Anytime there's a game anywhere happening, we start with the national anthem. He said, you all are hardcore. Every spring, Washington, D.C. is flooded with yellow school buses, out of which pour eighth graders from across the country who have been brought on a pilgrimage to the nation's capital. They will gaze at saint-like statues of the founding fathers. They will hear stories about the agreements that occurred like miracles at the Constitutional Convention. They will climb the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a structure that was intentionally designed to look and feel like a temple, and they will gaze in silent contemplation at our martyred president and read his words engraved on stone walls. Now, I do not mention any of these things by way of critique, but rather simply to point out that politics and liturgy always go together. A political vision always relies on liturgy to shape people's desires, ultimately hoping that you will love something enough to die for it. But if it is sometimes easy to miss the liturgy that is embedded in our politics, it can also be easy to miss the politics that are embedded in the church's liturgy. So let's think about what happens when we come here together on Sundays. First of all, you had to get up, get dressed, and come down here and come to a public gathering 
then why did you do this? Why don't we just stay home and listen to sermons on podcasts or watch worship services streaming over the internet? Perhaps we should ask that of people who come to Washington, D.C. to gather on the National Mall for political rallies. I see these all the time in D.C. I, dr I drop off my kids on the way to school, go down Pennsylvania Avenue, and there's people gathered in the mall or in front of the Supreme Court or in front of the White House for rallies, big and small. Why do they do that? Why do they make that effort? Why don't they just stay at home and post things on Facebook? Because gathering together makes a public statement. It is a witness. It demonstrates allegiance to something that they care about and that they want to be associated with. And so, with the church, if there's any doubt that the church gathers every Sunday for political purposes, simply consider the opening acclamation. The celebrant starts the service by saying, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what do the people say? And blessed be His kingdom, now and forever. So welcome to this morning's public event in which we have gathered to pledge allegiance to God's kingdom. Later in the service when we pass the peace, what are we doing? Is this uh, just sort of religious or churchy or Anglican way of saying hello? No. These are particular lines from a script that you have been given and I have been given to perform as actors in a liturgical drama that is performed every Sunday in church. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, and the church, understanding itself as Jesus' hands and feet, extends the blessings of his peace to the world. And Therefore, every Sunday we practice becoming agents of peace right here by extending Christ's peace to each other. We're embodying and practicing a role that we hope to take out to the world. When we come to the table for Eucharist, we enact an experienced table fellowship that's very different from the table fellowship that's practiced out in the world. Out in the world, some people go to expensive restaurants, other people go to inexpensive restaurants, and other people cannot afford to go to restaurants at all. And in general, these groups do not share fellowship together over a meal. But every Sunday, Christians come to a table in which Jesus is the host and which we are told is a foretaste of a banquet we will enjoy in the age to come. And as we come up, regardless of class or background, we stand in exactly the same posture, bringing nothing except outstretched hands to receive. And if we're reflective about what's happening here, if we notice the social implications of the Eucharist, we cannot fail to be shaped by that. The Eucharist is an act of worship, but it is an act that is infused with potential political implications as well. I mention these things as brief examples only to suggest 
that our politics should be shaped by reflecting on those things that make us Christians, that are central to our identity as Christians. Of course, we don't stop there. The end of the Christian vision is not to stay hermetically sealed uh, in a kind of self-enclosed, purified community. The liturgy at the end sends us out. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Take the formation that you've received here and then seek to imaginatively apply it more broadly. And so, we might ask, how should the Eucharist shape our views on immigration? How might passing the peace shape our views on foreign relations? Thinking in these ways will at times be difficult, and it requires creativity and wisdom and, most of all, prudence. We might find that certain Christian concerns don't have any obvious political traction. It may be that nobody's talking about it. We might find that the perspectives that emerge as Christians don't always line up neatly with party politics as they're currently conceived and that will frustrate the party politics. But that's okay. We might often find that there's not simply one right answer, but only less than ideal options in which trade-offs must be considered. We're seeking to work with the earthly materials of provisional relative goods, and it is never easy. But because it's not easy, simply allowing ourselves to be shaped by God's narrative, as important as that is, is not enough. We need other elements if we're to engage politically as Christians. So let me close by offering two additional brief considerations. The first is that we seek to reason and think aloud with other Christians, including and even especially those with whom we disagree politically. This may be difficult, and we will need to proceed with great care and with love and humility. We will need to learn to communicate our views with gentleness and to be open to being wrong. But the world is looking for models of how to do this. The church should be the one place in which we are able to have better conversations about contentious issues than the rest of the world is able to have. The second consideration is this. We should seek to ground our broader, sometimes abstract political reflections to ground those in local, hands-on involvement. In Washington, D.C., we often joke about going meta. Our city is full of people who like to talk and debate about things at the highest and most abstract and meta of levels. And I suspect perhaps here in the shadow of JMU that happens here as well. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. However, the church should always seek to be incarnational in its witness. It changes a debate. And it also changes us. If we're discussing immigration in the context of knowing and caring for immigrants. 
it changes our debates about poverty and how to make things better if we are relationally engaged with those who are economically disadvantaged. A few years ago, I was having conversations with a friend from Georgia, and he was telling me about his church and about the after-school tutoring program that his church had begun. Um, it was a Baptist church, and it was, in his words, a red state congregation, if ever there was one, and that most people there had very defined and agreed-upon views about things like immigration and undocumented workers. But they started an after-school tutoring program, he said, in part to help low-income kids in their neighborhood with their schoolwork and in part to have a platform for sharing the gospel. These were Baptists. And he said, to their complete surprise, that after-school program grew like crazy. And before too long, it was filled with hundreds of kids. Each week, they fed those kids and tutored them, and it became a major ministry of the church. Most of the kids lived nearby in large blocks of nondescript, low-rise apartment buildings that the church didn't actually realize there were so many of them until they started this ministry. And as the members of the congregation started working with these kids, they got to know their families as well. And they began to love these kids and love their families. And some of those families started coming to church. The complicating factor, however, was that most of these kids were Hispanic or Latino. And many of them and their families were almost certainly undocumented. And my friend told me, he said, we don't know what to do. <laughs> Many of us, he said, were pretty sure of our views about immigration policy before we started this ministry. But these kids have captured our hearts, and now our church is having conversations about politics that we never had before. Now, I think it is safe to say that members of this church have not suddenly ditched their political views, nor should they have. And it's safe to say that the very real and legitimate questions around immigration have not become any easier or less complicated. But let me ask you this. Where else in America can you find conservative, wall-building, red-state Christians worshiping side-by-side side with undocumented immigrants, caring for their kids, helping them graduate from high school so they can go to college, and struggling mightily to work out the politics of that? That only happens in the church. The church is a laboratory for God's political vision. The church is God's agent for change. The church is the place where we strive to embody what we hope the world will one day be. And if we commit ourselves to that, then Christians just might have something distinctive to contribute as citizens. Amen.